0: Amen. Thank you, Karina. Mrs. Quick. Appreciate that. Romans chapter number five. You'll join me there. Romans chapter number five. I encourage you to grab your prayer bulletin. On the back is the outline by which you can follow along and fill in some blanks. Brother Doug is going to make his way down the middle aisle here and love for you to grab an outline from him if you don't already have one and you can follow along too. And would like to, as we delve into chapter five, boy, Great passage, great transitional passage here in the book of Romans, and so I encourage you to follow along. Romans chapter 5 and part 17 of our study in Romans, and uh, excited to get into it in this part of it. All right, if you need an outline, Brother Doug is going to come and make his way down the middle. Make sure you get his attention there. As we alluded to last time, the first word is connected of chapter 5 is connected to the last word of chapter 4. We'll see that in here in a moment, but that first word of chapter 5 is uh, is indicative of a grand transition in the book of Romans, this logical book, this this uh, judicial book, if we might describe it as such. You see, it it connects not only to the chapter before, chapter 4, it also connects to all of the themes in the teaching from the prior chapters. One, chapter 1, all the way through chapter 4, it connects to the entirety of the book that we've had the uh, opportunity to study. But here's what's interesting. Starting in chapter 5, we begin to see that there's a change in the audience to whom Paul is writing. We might describe it this way. It certainly seems that Paul expects that those who are continuing to read his letter, his epistle, um, they've already accepted the free gift of salvation through Christ. Uh, The tone and the tenor uh, of the remainder of the letter really shows that those to who he's, who he's writing to have already trusted in Christ. That's that's what he is assuming. In fact, Paul's like this. If you've gotten through this much of my letter and you're going to read the rest, you've probably already come to put your faith and trust in Christ. Now, it's one of those letters or one of those articles that, uh, in his mind, a papers in his mind, that if you didn't like the first few chapters, if you didn't agree with, you just put it down because you didn't like it, you are angry with it, you were mad at the truth that you were conf- confronted with. But if you're continuing in chapter 5 and following, it's very apparent that uh, Paul is uh, speaking to a different audience now. Someone who realizes, wait a second, if I'm on my way to heaven and I've escaped hell, it's not through my own works. It's, It's not through my own endeavors and means. It is simply through faith and trust in what Christ has done on the cross of Calvary. So we have to understand that this is a great transition. There's several of these, Romans chapter 8 later on, there's several of these transitional parts of the book where it shows a a different focus. And in this situation, it sure seems to indicate a different audience to whom Paul is writing. We have already seen Abraham exemplified that salvation is by grace through faith and not of works. And now in this chapter, he's expounding upon Uh, That last word of chapter 4, remember it, justification. As we looked at just a week or two ago, and the reality is this. We say, okay, if he's dealing with justification, we've already uh, detailed what justification is biblically defined. What is justification? Well, remember this. This was from several sermons ago in our study here. But it's the act of God whereby, and I think a key word here, as we'll see later on, declares the believing sinner to be righteous in Christ on the basis of Christ's finish, Redemptive work. Now, this is from several sermons ago, and uh, not for a second am I saying here, and before we think that Paul is uh, giving us more of the same in this passage, we must note that beginning here in chapter 5 and following, specifically through chapter 8, we have the aftermath or consequences of justification. In fact, if you have a old oh, scold-filled Bible, uh, he entitles this next section through at least verse 11, the seven results of justification. Now, I don't want to limit uh, what I think Paul and the Holy Spirit were trying to convey through this. I, I think it deals much or deals much more with salvation as a whole. In other words, we've already he's already explained in the previous chapters what is justification. He's already given us that definition that you and I stand before God justified based upon our faith in Christ through grace. So we stand justified. Now here is what a justified life looks like. Here is how it is experienced. In fact, many ways, as he'll expound upon between this chapter and chapter 8, he'll say, here's what it does, here's what it accomplishes, here is what a justified life looks like in a very practical way. See, in, in chapter 6 and following, he gets very practical of what sanctification looks like. And then he comes and revisits it later in the book of Romans near the end. Again, more practical description of what a justified life looks. Looks like. So tonight, as you and I have gathered, as we're the children of God, and as, yes, we as a church have church on a Wednesday night, and we've gathered as the children of God, we've come to study the Word of God, and we get to understand, all right, what does a justified life enjoy, and what does it look like? If I stand justified before God based upon what Christ has done, how does Paul describe it? I like how one author described this passage. He said, these next few chapters, chapter 5 through chapter 8, are a description of when grace reigns. I like that. When grace reigns. In other words, okay, your life and my life has changed now because we have been introduced what? For by grace are ye saved. And that same grace continues through. In fact, there's an allusion to it here even in verse number two. And the reality is that grace maintains in our life. So in our lives, grace reigns. And here's what it looks like. Here are the enjoyments, the consequences, the results, however you want to describe it. Here is what a justified lo- life looks like. Look at verse number one. Let's see what Paul's description first of all. Therefore, based on everything that he's just written in the previous four chapters, therefore... And literally, being justified in the Greek, it kind of means having been justified, okay? Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is a statement that we've looked at in in context in other places, but let's understand. Here's what a justified life looks like right away, is peace with God. Peace with God. Not to be taken lightly, not to be dismissed as just a simple statement of Scripture found throughout. It necessitates the differentiation between two phrases or terminology we find in the Scripture. Throughout the Scripture, we'll, we'll find the peace of God and peace with God. So how do we tell the difference as we read it? And we, we certainly know that the peace of God, the peace that passes all understanding and things like that. And then there's peace with God. Could we just simplify it and say, okay, this is the difference. Number one, the peace of God deals with situations. And as Ms. Connie alluded to, when you're facing difficult situations, there is a peace of God that he gives. And we're supposed to ah, plug into that. We're supposed to submit ourselves to his perfect will and enjoy the peace of God as believers. We're supposed to say, okay, my God is sovereign. He's in control. His will is perfect. And it will, as he's promised, be for my good and his glory. That's the peace of God. Well, the peace with God deals with what? Your standing. You're standing, much different than day-to-day situations, events of life, and the circumstances that we face on a, a daily basis. So there is a huge difference here. Not by accident does Paul say we have peace with God in this passage. We understand it, we've detailed it before. You cannot experience the peace of God without getting first peace with God. You cannot experience the peace of God without first having peace with God. Uh, We detailed it in in previous services. You know, you can't enjoy the promises of God without knowing the God of the promises. Well, the same is true of His peace. You you can't enjoy, you can't experience the peace of God without having peace with God. As uh, As we often do, you and I look at the world, and certainly we're coming up upon a season where in January, after holidays and everything else, where it seems suicide rates are are crazier than ever, and uh, people lacking peace and lacking fulfillment. The, the Christmas presents under the tree didn't bring them peace like they had hoped. Fulfillment, satisfaction, all of those kind of things. So as we think about the world and people around the world, the populace in the world, and we see among all the nations, all these different people that seek after riches and fame and power and fulfillment in one way or the other, Boil it down and what do you come to? Well, beyond the, uh, beyond, if once we have our basic needs met and satisfying, the reality is that people are really seeking peace. They want peace. Peace of heart, peace of spirit, peace in their lives. They want peace. And yet, uh, I think it's obvious that though they may be rich, Though they may be famous, though they may have much powerful power, uh, the truth is this. People cannot find peace in anything this world offers. The uh, articles and the the, the headlines are rife with uh, statement after statement about this rich person and this powerful person and this famous person uh, ending their lives distraught, discouraged, angry man, having no peace. You know not to surprise us. I like what Augustine said many years ago. He he wrote this. Speaking about God, he said, "You made us for yourselves, and our hearts find no peace until they rest in you." And so it is true for all of mankind. We have no peace. And it will not be found in a peace treaty. It will not be found in riches and, and popularity, fame. It will not be found in power. It will not be found in heaping possessions to herself. It will not be found in family get-togethers. It will not be found in holiday celebrations. The reality is, if you don't know God, you don't know peace. You are at odds with God, as even Paul alludes to here. So if you don't know God, you're not at peace with God, and you don't have the peace of God. In fact, what Augustine says is obviously based upon Scripture. One of the verses we saw in Isaiah, Isaiah 44, 48, 22, excuse me, there is no peace, saith the Lord, unto the wicked. They don't have it. They don't know it. They're strangers. They're estranged from peace because they certainly don't know God. So what needs to take place? Well, in order to have peace, you need to have peace with God. People need to be reconciled to God. We might put it this way. They need to have a reconciled relationship with God to experience peace with Him. The ideal of reconciliation, Paul speaks of it in verse 10 of this passage. Notice it. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, Much more, being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. We'll get to that verse here in a little bit, but understand the concept of reconciliation. What does it mean to be reconciled? Well, literally, it speaks of the idea of bringing back together with nothing between. So we're reconciling things. We're bringing something so that they are in congruency. They're together, and there's nothing in between. is literally the spiritual concept of reconciliation, bringing back together, reuniting, and there's nothing in between. So immediately, therein is the key. Something is between mankind and God. If we don't know him, if we don't know Jesus Christ as a Savior, something's there. It's the great divider. It's the great separator. And we don't know it to be what? Well, obviously it's sin, right? Paul says if sin is the great scourge of both earthly and spiritual relationships. Sin is what separates us from God. It's, it's the theme, one of the minor sub-themes throughout the entire book or letter that Paul writes. Sin separates. You know what sin also does? As we've seen, it steals our peace and it steals our fellowship. It's that thing which causes large chasms in the best of relationships. We can take a marriage relationship. We can take a friendship. And the reality is when sin comes in that relationship, what does it do? It separates. If a husband loses his cool, he gets angry, and he says words he ought not to, it creates a chasm. It separates, it divides. Friends in church, church members, you let sin enter in a bad attitude, a bad spirit, mean or unkind words. Sin enters, and what does sin do? It separates. And so it is, as Paul's alluding to here. Here's the good news, justified believer, those who've been justified by Christ. You know what, my friend? You tonight have peace with God. That's what Paul's saying, listen, enjoy, rejoice in the justified life that you have been blessed with. Now we do know this, the impact of sin and its ability to separate and divide isn't only uh, found or simply, or should I say felt, before we know God, before we've come to put our trust in Christ as our Savior. Sin is also working after we're saved to divide us and separate each believer from God a son and daughter from his or her heavenly father. We saw the verses again, especially Isaiah 59 too. But your iniquities, notice the statement, God speaking. Your iniquities, your sin, your transgressions have separated between you and your God and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. It goes right along with Psalm 66, 18. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. So, as Paul is speaking to those of us who have put our faith and trust in Christ, we've been justified. Reality is, praise be to God, we have made peace through Christ with God. We stand in a position that unbelievers can't, can't enjoy. But reality is, sin can enter into our lives, and it can separate us. And It says, I mean, that's straight from the Scripture, it separates us from God. It literally um, his, hides his face, causes his face to be hid from us. Now, with that statement made and with our understanding of that true, the fact is this, you and I prove these verses to be true way too often, don't we? When we allow sin in our lives, when we, a thought, an action, a word that should have not been spoken, whatever the case may be, uh, the fact is we prove way too often how sin affects our relationship with God. And we allow it to, to get in there and separate us. And, and, and here's the, the good news. And here's what Paul, I think, would want to say, and I think he does in others of his letters. Listen, Christian, you have peace with God. Why let sin come back in and ruin it? Why get to a point where even temporarily, even just for a moment, sin has entered back in through that thought, that action, that whatever the case may be, you've allowed sin to come back in. And the very God that you have made peace with through Jesus Christ, why in the world would you let sin interrupt it? Why let it divide it? Why let it sin separate you? And I think it's a good challenge for you and I. It's a good reminder that Paul says, man, you have so much to be thankful for, that you have peace with God tonight. Don't let sin come back in and mess it up. But there's some truths that we want to identify. Because there's some big differences between the separation. Listen carefully. There's some big differences between the separation that sin causes between an unbeliever and God and the separation that sin causes between a believer and God. Don't, don't forget this. Mark it down. Learn them from this passage here as Paul even speaks of and even in other passages. Number one, notice it. It's on your outline there. The sin of a believer produces a temporary separation, while the sin of an unbeliever produces an eternal separation. So with every sin that an unbeliever commits, he's solidifying his separation from God. Yes, praise be to God, he can come and put his faith and trust in Christ and have that sin covered, paid for, and so forth. But the reality is, that sin that an unbeliever commits, it's further separating him, and it's for eternity. The wages of sin is death. What is that death there? Is it physical? Yes. Is it spiritual? Yes. What is that? Separation from God for all of eternity. So, my friend, the reality of this is, is, whoa, for you and I as believers, boy, I sure am thankful that any sin that comes in my life only breaks my peace with God temporarily. That fellowship, and we'll talk about that here in a moment, what it actually affects. But the fact is this, it is only temporary. When you and I apply 1 John chapter 1, and verse 9, the Christian's bar of soap, we confess it, we forsake it, and what does God say? He'll cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We are at peace once again with God. Or restored fellowship would be a better description. That's not true for the unbeliever. See, as you and I hear an unbeliever curse, as we hear an unbeliever say something they ought not to say, when we see an unbeliever get mad and angry over something, when we see them do something that is sin, that goes against God's Word, can I tell you, my friend, that is just adding to the reason and the cause. They are separated from God for all of eternity. Sin is serious. They need to make peace with God. There's a second distinguishing aspect that we need to identify this evening. Number two, the sin of a believer does nothing to affect his standing before God. While the sin of an unbeliever ensures his condemned standing before God. When you sin... And we certainly heard the analogy many times before as a child as a son or daughter of God a child of God when you sin it doesn't change your standing before God you are still justified before God it does not change your standing praise be to God for that. It breaks our fellowship, yes. It affects the immediate exposure, and the the immediate uh, fellowship with God until it's dealt with. But my friend, your standing has not changed. You no longer. and, And let me step back a second. Let me encourage you about this. There's some great truth to this passage. And you may have already picked up on an overarching theme to the chapter. You know what it is? It's really a picture of your salvation and my salvation and how secure our salvation is in Christ. Really, I think it goes through, it's there over all of Romans. I think those who believe you can lose your salvation, they hate these chapters of Romans. Because what it proves is this wait a minute, if salvation is all of Christ, I have done nothing to be justified and God declares me justified. Can I tell you, my friend? That's eternal security. And and what God declares stands. And it it is all through this passage, this reality. You have peace with God. Your standing is never changed by your sin. We've often said what a sad life that would be to live if you think that every sin changes your standing before God. Oh, justified today, oh, I sinned, no longer justified. It goes against the very doctrinal teaching that Paul is presenting here, and even Jesus Christ himself taught and preached. Very important that we understand that. And yet the unbeliever, the unbeliever with every sin, ensures his condemned standing before God. Um, Even Paul here speaks of our condemned standing before God as unbelievers. When he states that before salvation, did you catch it in verse 10? What did he call us before salvation? What's the word in verse 10? Enemies. We're enemies with God. I mean, that is the condemned standing. Can I tell you tonight, aren't you thankful that when you and I sin, we're not the enemy? As believers, we stand justified, and will we sin? Unfortunately, that carnal mind and the flesh is still fighting with us, and we do slip and sin, but I am so thankful today that God doesn't say, okay, fine, now you're my enemy. That would be a very bad day, wouldn't it? Going back and forth, friend, enemy, friend, enemy, friend, enemy. It's like a little kid, isn't it? (laughs) One recess, we're best friends. Next recess, I'm not talking to you. If you didn't share your ball. God's not like that. That's, that's Paul saying, no, we have peace with God. If I am justified, I know I have peace with God. Yes, sin can affect my fellowship. It can separate me in that sense. But praise be to God, I never lose my standing as a justified child of God. The unbeliever cannot say that. The person who's never put their faith in trust cannot say it. In fact, he says they're enemies. It's a strong statement, but honestly, it's one that accurately describes the lack of peace between us and God. When we are unsafe, for the unsafe person is at war with God because of sin, diametrically opposed as, as much as any two combatants. We think of World War, uh, different wars and things, World War I, World War II, and the reality of different wars, we see these two opposing forces. In some, it was communism and socialism versus democracy and capitalism. And you see that in the ideologies today of, of Islam and, and Christian nations. And you, you see these diametrically opposed. Can I tell you, no two combatants are more diametrically composed than a sinner who doesn't know Christ and a holy God. And they are at war. They, there are hostilities. There's no peace, is what Paul says here. And so the very sin in our lives has made us estranged from God, though we were his creation. And that sin has brought the wrath of God down upon mankind. Remember back to Romans chapter 1, verse 18? That was about five years ago when we covered it. And uh, the, the wrath of God has been revealed. Why? Because of our sin. We're enemies. Here's what's interesting, though, or wonderful. In Christ, that wrath has been satisfied. That wrath was born by Jesus Christ, our Savior, on the cross of Calvary. Our sin, that sin, has been dealt with in our justification. We've seen it was removed. His righteousness imputed. The last chapter spoke of the act of justification. His righteousness imputed to our account. And so through salvation, what do we have? The arms are laid down. The arms of rebellion and fighting. We, we lay down and we are no longer at war with God. There is a cessation of hostilities between us and God. And now there is peace. A brokered peace that requires an unconditional surrender on our part to Jesus Christ as our Savior and as our perfect sacrifice. And so peace is found. And here's the, remember what we said justification is? We're declared righteous. Now listen to me. With that declaration of being declared righteous, when we put our faith and trust in Christ, it is coupled with a second declaration, and here it is. There's a declaration of our justification that is coupled then with a declaration of peace. Peace with God. So every time you and I hear someone stand in this baptismal, and they're about to be baptized, and they're saying, listen, hey, I put my faith and trust in Christ. I have, uh, he is my Savior. Can I tell you what that's a declaration of? They are justified in Christ, number one. And number two, Paul says this, they are at peace with God. Aren't you thankful tonight that you are at peace with God? See, Millions and billions of people don't enjoy that. They have no experience of that. Today, tonight, they are living at odds with God. They're enemies with God. They are diametrically opposed to God. Why? Because they are sinners. They're separated from God by that very sin. And yet you and I have had our sins paid for. We have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And that has brought peace between us and God. Boy, we have a lot to be thankful for tonight. As we stand justified in Christ, Paul's making a great point. Boy, I think the psalmist described it well. You may have read this verse before in your devotion. You think that's kind of an odd statement. Well, understand, the psalmist is describing, he's trying to describe the indescribable. He's trying to describe what the salvation of God is like. Do you remember this verse? He said this in Psalm eighty-five, ten. In God's salvation, mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. That's a funny statement, but man. Um, unless your name's righteousness and you marry someone named Peace. But anyway. Uh, sorry, I had to go there. Uh, righteousness and peace have kissed each other. What's he talking about? In God's salvation. Here's the psalmist. He says, listen. Isn't it amazing? And I, uh, the picture's here. What's imputed to your and I's account through Christ? Righteousness. What are we declared to be with God? At peace. And they kissed each other. Through the mercy of God, the truth that, that God has presented, that we've put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I mean, that is a great verse describing what you and I have in salvation. Righteousness and peace kissed each other. Man, mean, I told you before in other Wednesday nights, the more I study Romans... I sure, I, I sure do think we've gotten a good deal. I really do. I'm pinching myself. We have it so good. As believers and those who stand justified before an almighty God. Can I tell you tonight, it is good to be at peace with God through being justified. That's where we stand today, thankfully, because of our justification in Christ. What's the statement? He says this. Now, don't forget, he's, already, he's saying, whoa, whoa, having been justified, you have peace. We're at peace with God. There's another description of the salvation that we enjoy, of the reign of grace, if we might put it this way. Look at verse number two. He says this, by whom, and we'll just read the first part here, by whom also we have access by faith and to this grace wherein we stand. Oh, that's a great statement. A great statement. Rule number two, not only uh, do we have peace with God, we have access to God. Not only do we have peace with God, we have access to God. When he talks about access to the grace, literally the God of grace, the the one who gives that grace, um, we immediately, as as we read the verse, think of what Christ has given us. He has given us freedom to stand before God in his righteousness. I, I love the term here translated as access, it literally is indicative of being introduced, having freedom to enter or to approach or being brought to. All of those things apply to what Christ has done for us. You and I stand today spiritually where we have no right or reason to stand. We have access to the God of heaven through the grace that reigns because of Christ's work on the cross. I think the greatest picture scripturally that we have of this is back in the Old Testament. We all know well the story of Esther, and as was the Persian law in that day, no man could enter into the, the throne room. Um, unless he was summoned, unless he was uh, requested to come. And if they did enter it, if they just took it on themselves to go in the throne room, uh, that was certain death, unless, unless something, uh, or s- unless the king somehow excused them. And in that day, it was that he would uh, extend the scepter, uh, the royal scepter, to the person who came in, and that kind of gave permission for them to continue to approach the king. We know the story well as uh, as Esther felt the need and was encouraged to go before the king on behalf of her people, the Jews, through several days of prayer and even fasting among the Jews and herself. And she she came to that moment where she stood and walked into the throne room and there was the king. And in that moment, the decision was, was the king going to be gracious and extend the scepter or was he going to enforce the law and, and kill Esther? We know the story well how the king... Had mercy and grace on Esther, and he extended the royal scepter, accepting her into his presence, allowing her to approach him. Now, I'm sorry, I can't help but think that's a perfect illustration, especially when we put it in terms of this context of this. I think Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 is the royal scepter being extended from heaven. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, you look with it, you know it, but God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Can't help but picture that cross on Calvary is like a royal scepter extended each one. You can now approach God. You and I now have access to God. Through who? Well, through Jesus Christ. We have the ability to approach God. Now, all who, all, excuse me, may approach him to be saved. And yet those who are already saved, those who are justified according to to Paul, oh, we have it even greater, even better if you could put it that way. Number one, you know what we have? Those that trust in Christ now have direct access to the God of heaven. Have direct access to the God of heaven. Nothing stops us from approaching God uh, because of our justified position in Christ. You and I now have a VIP pass. I was noticing the other day as I was just watching a, a sporting uh program and, and somebody was standing on the sidelines. They had a tag around their, their neck and they had this thing hanging from it at the bottom. It said, um, all or all access. Unlimited access. Something to that and uh, literally they could go anywhere and everywhere and my friend as you and i are justified in jesus christ we have access to the very god of heaven everyone has access now because of the cross of calvary to come for salvation to god but you and i if we put our faith and trust in christ we have unlimited direct access to god and that's pretty amazing There's no walls, no partitions, no obstacles, no separating gulfs. We have total and direct access to God. You say, well, Pastor, I I don't think that, you know, okay, I, I get it through prayer and everything else. Well, let's put ourselves for a moment in the shoes of those to whom Paul was writing. People who had been saved in that world in that day, specifically even Jews, you see, the Jews in that day, they would have perfectly understood what, what Paul was saying. In fact, they spiritually, they may have stumbled, they may have hesitated of embracing that truth. You say, well, why is that? Well, think about it. In Jesus' day, as it was in other times, there were many obstacles and walls, barriers protecting the approach to God, especially in the temple. As you went to the Temple Mount, the reality is the very first thing you would come to was what was called the Courtyard of the Gentiles. And obviously, by its very name, you understand, as that wall was approached, you could not go past that wall if you were a Gentile. You remained there. That's as close as you could get to to the presence of God that was supposedly was in the, the Holy Holies. You, you were stopped. You couldn't approach any further. Well, if you were to go on in the Temple Mount at that time, that you would soon approach an area that was called the Courtyard of Women. And there, too, was a the barrier. There, too, was a wall that separated the Jewish women from going any further. That was their courtyard. That's where they had to stop in relation to the Temple Mount. Now, here's what's interesting. You may have never understood before, or maybe Should I put it this way? Maybe you've never uh, connected it. But as that was the courtyard of women, there was a wall. They could go not further. The men could go a little further. And there was a courtyard of the men. And there was a wall there. And they, the men, couldn't go any further than that. Into the temple. Now here's what's interesting in connecting the dots. You remember reading this verse? Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. Paul emphasizes this to the Judaizers. There is neither Jew nor Greek, Gentile, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. Has great context, doesn't it, when you understand the temple and how it was laid out and the courtyards and saying, wait, there's a separation between Gentiles and Jews, and then there's a separation between women and men, and then after the courtyard of men, there was a, that wall, that obstacle, the barrier by which the men could not go past, only the priests could. And the priests would go into what was called the holies, and they, they would perform the tasks, sacrifices, and other things, and only the priests could go in there. And then we certainly are well aware of that last barrier, that last place of curtain or wall, however you want to describe it, it guarded the entrance to the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. We're well familiar with that; only the high priest could enter there, or could only do so on the Day of Atonement. He did so to present the blood for the sacrifice for the sins of the people. It was a vivid picture in even Christ's day that God was unapproachable by sinful men. That you and I stand on the outside looking in, whether Gentile, Jewish man, Jewish woman, we stand on the outside looking in. There is something that separates us from God without the mediation of a priest. But aren't you thankful all those walls and barriers were broken down by Jesus Christ? He came along, and I love what Paul said in one of his later letters. Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 13 to 14. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who are sometimes afar off, and all I can think of is the Gentile who is way back here. I can barely see the temple. <laughs> ye who are sometimes afar off are made what? Nigh. Close. Peace. Access are made nigh by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace, who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. Isn't it neat? I love to see all the writings of Paul and how he just has a continuity to his theme and his subject matter all the way through. I understand what he's picturing even in that. I like to put it this way. Jesus Christ is our one and done mediator as far as the blood uh, sacrifice and appearing before God. He's our one and only high priest. Once and for all, he's paved the way for us in our position of justification to have unlimited and direct access to God and his grace. Aren't you thankful tonight that you and I have direct access to God? i'm glad i don't have to go through a priest forgive me but i always thought it comical to go into a little booth and tell a man priest about your sins to say a term father forgive me and all these other things hey my friend can i tell you i have a greater god than that i have a god who's made a way for me to have direct access to my god to him So Paul says, all those partitions, those barriers, they've been removed by Christ Jesus. And here's the great truth. It's not just a direct access, but it's also, we would call it this, it's a confident access. A confident access. (coughs) Later, as Paul writes... Later, as Paul writes to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 2, or chapter 3, excuse me, verse 12, he says this. And whom we have boldness, and notice this terminology, and access with confidence by the faith of him. By the faith of Christ, our faith in him. Interesting statement, isn't it? when he's speaking of Christ, we have boldness in him. We would call it this, it's an effective access. I remember the, a day, a few weeks before we moved to Michigan. Uh, Eric and I, we um, we haven't been able to do much sightseeing there in Virginia, being 35 minutes from downtown Washington, D.C., and so we haven't had a chance to do much there what's going on. I, we didn't have much opportunity to do anything there, and a sightseeing, seeing some things like that. And so uh, the time was coming for us to move, and and uh, we, I knew someone who worked in the White House, never been there before. We knew someone that worked there, and so he pulled a few strings and was able to expedite our visit to the White House. And so we were able to get in just a few weeks before we left, and uh, some of you, anybody can if a long time ahead of time and, and planning it. Uh, but anyway, we got in, and so we got to visit. We got to walk around the White House and that was uh, enjoyable to a degree, yeah, and so forth. But, but here's the fact of the matter. When we went to the White House, they had areas partitioned off that you couldn't go. There were places you couldn't go. You, can go, you couldn't go into the wing that was the residence of the presidents, and so forth, and so on. Uh, you couldn't go there. There was, uh, In fact, if you think about it, nobody, including the president, even knew that I was there. I mean, here I am. I'm in the White House, I'm in his house. And he doesn't even know I was in his house. But I was. I was there. The fact is, though, in my visit, I was limited. I was powerless. I was insignificant. It was an insignificant visit. It was unexceptional. I, I couldn't talk to the president. I, I wasn't able to talk to him. I wasn't able to uh, bring, talk to him about different things. Hey, Judah, let's just go to this, okay? Any more of that? Thank you, sir. <laughs> I I'd had no ability to go and talk to him about something or whatever the case may be, affect change. The fact is, I, I was a nobody, though I was in the White House. Now, I sure am thankful that when you and I come into the throne room of God, we're not just a fly on the wall. See, this is not speaking, oh, cool, you know, I get to go to heaven, I get to stand on the side, and, yeah, God's, oh, I'm somewhat near God, and, and all these, no, 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 no. When you and I, we have access to God through being justified in Christ, you and I are front and center. We have the full attention and focus of God. What if in my visit at that time, I believe it was President Obama, what if he had come out of one of those rooms and came, Hey, hey, Stephen Henry, how are you doing today? Now some of us might have been tempted to give a piece of our mind, but anyway. (laughs) But, But honestly, if the President addressed us, and we ought to be respectful of the position and so forth, but we probably would have talked about that, wouldn't it? I probably would have said, wow, you wouldn't believe it. I went to the White House, and I got to talk to the president. He came, and he talked to me by name. He talked with me for five minutes. And we would think that's pretty awesome, the president of the United States talking with one of us in the White House for five minutes. Do you know that tonight if you go home and you pray and talk to God for two hours, he's going to listen? You have access to God, the God of all creation. Your Heavenly Father. And it's all through Jesus Christ. You're not an insignificant visitor. You have the ears and the attention of the King of Kings. It is an effective visit. It is a powerful visit and access. You and I can have that confidence. Confidence that He hears me when I pray. That He answers the prayer according to His perfect and wise will. I'm so thankful tonight that you and I have the confident access to our God. One last statement and we'll be done. You see, this access is, as we've seen it already, this this access is direct, it's confident access. I know he hears me, I know I have his attention, I'm front and center. But last but not least, I want you to see this, it is also an intimate access. An intimate access. I told you already that really this passage lasts from chapter 5 to chapter 8. Turn with me to chapter 8. Look at verse number 15. Chapter 8 and verse number 15. Paul writes this. In verse 14, he's teaching us that we are called the sons of God. Here's what he's supporting that with. Verse 15. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. We've said often this is a term of endearment. It's in a term of intimate connection. Sometimes we hear the equivalent in our modern language of daddy. Just a a personal, informal connection that's intimate. Um, Yes, he is the King of Kings. He is the creator of all. He is the God of the universe. But I'll tell you, my friend, in just a few moments, when I go to prayer, I'm talking to my heavenly father. He's my father. He's my Abba father. I can talk to him intimately. Now, I dare say you and I would not talk to the president intimately. Yes, sir. No, sir. Be very formal. You and I get to talk to the God of the universe and call him Abba Father. Why? Well, simply because you and I have been justified in Jesus Christ. He's made it possible. It's part and parcel of the salvation that you and I enjoy today. And do not miss it tonight, Christian. There are millions and there are billions of people who do not have access to God the Father like you and I do. As we are here tonight justified in Christ through faith and grace, you and I have a direct, confident, and intimate access to God. As the song says, oh great salvation that we have, so great a salvation that you and I enjoy when grace reigns. We'll continue on next week, or actually two weeks, as we delve in further into this chapter. Great truth. Brother Cliff, you'll bring these prayers. Uh,